So growing up, I remember my father using words that I didn't understand at the dinner table. Now sometimes they were long words, sometimes they were just obscure and words that weren't part of our everyday language. After it happened a few times, we were wise to the routine. He would slip the word into a sentence, and my brother, my sister, and I would just keep eating. We weren't about to ask him what it meant. He would say the word a second time. We would busy ourselves with pouring Worcestershire sauce on our mashed potatoes, or we would devote all of our attention to cutting the slab of chicken on our plate. He would use the word a third time. When we still failed to make eye contact, he would finally call on one of us. Terry, do you know what that word means? No, I would answer. Then go look it up, he would reply. And so it would happen that I made once again the trek to the bookcase in the hall that held our brand new volumes of the World Book Dictionary. Now, I don't know if my father was all that concerned about enhancing our vocabulary or if he was just determined to get his money's worth out of the mammoth books that lined the bookshelves. But we knew that engaging him when he first said the new word would mean a disruption in our meal. It would be a hassle. It would be at least a small amount of trouble. If we ignored the situation, at least each of us had a one in three chance of going about our dinner routine unimpeded. And this brings me to our gospel. When I first read today's gospel passage from Mark, I wondered why the disciples didn't wake Jesus up earlier. I mean, here they are in a boat, in the middle of the sea, stuck in a severe windstorm, and Jesus is in the stern of the boat sleeping. Now this was no mild or quickly passing turbulence. Don't forget, there were four experienced fishermen on board, and clearly it was enough to scare them. Waves are crashing, water starts to fill up the boat, and only then do they go to wake Jesus up. By this point, they're a little irritated. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus gets up, stills the storm with a mere verbal command, and then scolds the disciples. Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And here's the clincher. The translation we read today, the NRSV, renders the next phrase, and they were filled with great awe. But to translate the Greek that way actually domesticates what's really going on here. It makes the disciples seem a little more righteous, a little more religious, a little more pious. Truth be told, that phrase is probably better translated as them having been terrified or struck with fear or seized with alarm. So they are scared before Jesus calms the sea, and they are still scared afterwards, just for a different reason. I wonder if the disciples waited so long to wake Jesus up because they knew that he would do something like this. Something that would turn their world upside down just as much as the storm on the sea. And so they waited as long as they could, pretending that nothing was wrong, that they couldn't fix themselves. Just as all of us Wooten kids stared down at our plates during dinner so that we could continue eating without interruption as long as possible. Truth be told, when we don't call on God for help, usually one of several reasons are at play. First, maybe we suffer from what Parker Palmer calls functional atheism. 
And he says that's the unconscious, unexamined conviction that if anything decent is going to happen here, we are the ones who must make it happen. A conviction held even by people who talk a good game about God. I know that at times I am a functional atheist. I believe in God. In fact, I recite the Nicene Creed three times every Sunday, never crossing my fingers behind my back. I say my prayers. I ask God for help. Sometimes I even start the day with the collect for guidance found in morning prayer. And it goes, Heavenly Father, in you we live and move and have our being. We humbly pray you so to guide and govern us by your Holy Spirit that in all the cares and occupations of our life we may not forget you, but may remember that we are ever walking in your sight. Of course, no sooner have I said this prayer than I begin to worry about the day ahead. I begin to worry about all the things that I have left undone, about the responsibilities that I think are mine to bear, and about how things will only get done if I do them myself. And that's bad. (laughs) No sooner have I asked for God's presence and guidance than I forget that there's any other game in town but my own. I forget that Jesus is in the boat with me. So maybe we all have a little bit of functional atheism in us. Sometimes, though, I think we don't ask for help because we've seen so much that doesn't make sense in the world. Maybe we're not even so sure that God has the power to make a difference. And we only have to look at the news to see things that silence our prayers. What can we make of the shooting in Charleston this week? If ever there was a violent storm, it was then and there. And was Jesus sleeping? Because let's be honest, that's the question we're all asking, right? In the face of such tragedy, sometimes we lose our words. The thing is, it's precisely in silences such as these that the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf, Paul tells us, crying out with sighs too deep for words. Our inability to pray becomes itself a form of prayer. But if the fear that God won't answer our prayer keeps us from crying out, so does our fear that God actually will. Our experiences of God, real experiences that bring us face to face with God's power and love and grace, those kind of experiences don't leave us unchanged. Look at the disciples. They've left their families, their career, everything that they knew. And with every miracle they witness, they know a little bit more about the kingdom of heaven. They know a little bit more about what God is calling them into. They know a little bit more about what lies ahead. They understand a little more deeply that coming face to face with God both places a demand on us and it empowers us. And it is this power that all too often we are happy to ignore. Annie Dillard captures it beautifully in this quote that has become a classic, and I'm sure you've heard it before, but I want to say it again. She writes, On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. 
Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. The power of the living God disrupts our lives in ways we sometimes would just as soon forego. It opens us to possibilities that we fear are too good to be true and possibilities that we fear are too true to be safe. Now, the disciples weren't alone in their fear of a close encounter with Jesus' power. It's actually a common reaction to miracles in the Bible. In fact, just after this story, when Jesus and the disciples arrive on the other side of the lake and get out of the boat, they're confronted with a man who is possessed by unclean spirits, a man who lives in caves, howls all night, and breaks any chains that the people try to use to subdue him. Jesus casts out the demons and sends them into a herd of swine, and the swine or the pigs then run down the steep bank and into the lake and they drown. And when all the people from the surrounding area come, they see the man clothed and calm and sitting with Jesus. And they don't celebrate. Instead, they are afraid. So afraid that they ask Jesus to leave. The power of God to heal, to cross boundaries, to make us more than we ever dreamed we could be, that kind of power is so scary that sometimes we don't want to come face to face with it. We'd rather live in the small world we've made for ourselves than in the big world God wants for us. Maybe that kind of fear, the fear of such a big, open, inclusive, and loving world, maybe that kind of fear contributed to Dylan Stormroof shooting nine people at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston. I don't know. But there is an underlying truth in all of this, even for people like us. Sometimes the things we most hope for are also the things we are most afraid of because they will change our lives in ways that we can't foresee. If they become true, these dreams will point to further possibilities that we can't even begin to imagine. They'll disrupt the routine of our lives. They'll turn our lives upside down. They will bring us in touch with both a helplessness that makes us feel vulnerable and a strength that is every bit equally as scary. In the words of Annie Dillard, they will draw us out to where we can never return. That's why sometimes we prefer to captain the boat all by ourselves, ignoring the fact that it's sinking so as not to give ourselves over to an even greater power also outside of our control. To be honest, sometimes we prefer the safety of going it alone to the power of Christ working in and through us. In other words, our empowerment can be just as terrifying as our inadequacy, if not more. So here is the question for this morning. What are the things, both in our own lives and in our life together here at St. Peter's, what are the things that we both hope for and we are scared of? Where do we sense the presence of God at work in ways that will change us forever? And in what ways do we choose the comfort of the status quo even at the risk of drowning instead of the knowledge that Christ with us and in us can empower us in ways that we could never imagine?